listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. Tennille, our mum, and Emma, her awesome friend, share deep passion for the snow. They started the podcast together to share all their experiences with you. Between them, they have skied over 95 resorts, both held ski instructor qualifications, lived and worked in resorts, and still spent every hard-earned dollar skiing. They set their lives up around snow travel, and our ski bags are always packed, ready to go. We're certainly not complaining about this, are we? No way. And even better, we get to share all the experiences. Hey, Kieran, how are you going? Oh, fantastic. Good to see you guys. Really good to see you. Yeah. Today, we are going to dive into the world of ski guiding for those people who are curious about it, whether they are thinking about it as a career, full-time, part-time, they've heard of it, they don't know what ski guides really do, you hear your friends say, oh, just get a guide, what does that mean, is that for me if I'm a good skier or is it for me if I'm a bad skier, who needs a guide, does it pay well? Etc. Yeah. So many questions. Okay. Let, let's start with <laughs> how do you get into it if it's a as a career path? Yeah, that, that that's it's a great question, and um, you know it's just a lovely thing to do as well. Um, so we can talk a bit more about that later. But how you initially get in? Um, probably the best place to start is to just get some basic ski instructor qualifications. Um, so, um, in Australia, that means you want to get at least your level one and level two ski instructor qualifications. And that's, that's probably, you know, the first place that sort of people sort of start because, um, it gives you a bit of, um, you know, background in dealing with people, but probably more importantly, just communicating uh, with people, um, mm. but also listening to them watching them ski because half the battle is is really um in ski guiding is is just getting to know the customers and listening to them and um you know finding out what that sort of needs are so um i'd I'd say ski instructing is a really good sort of introduction to that um and sort of simultaneously to that um you want to start getting some basic um avalanche qualifications um, and in Australia that's 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 become really easy because there's quite a few companies that are running um, the AST courses which is avalanche skills training and there um, it's a curriculum that's been developed in Canada and then sold and licensed to some instructors in Australia so it's, it's relatively simple to do then the level one and the level two AST course, um, sort of just here in Australia, and, um, and and that's that's probably the sort of the best place to start um, to get some experience. Um, and then um, probably the next step is to start, you know, sort of really just getting out into the mountains and start to gather, you know, some more experience because. Obviously, if you're going to take people out in the mountains, you you want to have, you know, a pretty good base of experience in which to do it. Um, so what that means is, um, you know, doing lots of um, ski touring to places that you want to go. Um, and when you do it, it's obviously going to be far more beneficial if you can do those ski tours with people that, you know, have a better knowledge base than you. So you can learn something from, from them and, and start to sort of, get serious about that yeah so in summary you've developed that base the ski instructing is really good um at the same time you can get these basic avalanche qualifications once you've got that um you know you've got a good base then to sort of head out into the mountains and do you know quite a bunch of ski touring to sort of start to develop that experience base and that skills base um and you probably want to have you know depending on how much you're doing each year, you probably want to have sort of, you know, probably a good three to five years of, you know, of, of of just ski touring on your own with friends and building up that base of experience before you really want to start taking others out or, or sort of taking on that further responsibility because, you know, a lot can happen and um, uh, you want to, you know, you really need that base um, and, um, mm. and sort of to go from there. 
Yeah. And so, I would say, sorry. No, keep going. Sorry. Yeah. And I, I think the other things that have become, you know, fantastic the last few years that really helped that sort of process is that um, there's two or three really great um, apps that go onto your phone, um, a GPS apps. Um, one's called uh, Gaia GPS, and I think Strava might be just buying that out at the moment, so so they yeah. might rename part of it. Um, there's also another one called FatMap, um, and and both of those programs um, allow you to, um, even if you don't have cell phone reception, see where you are in real time in the mountains, and, wow. and that'll really sort of help you, you know, not, get lost or go wrong and um, that sort of thing. So, and using, getting good at using those apps will become incredibly handy when a few years down the track when you start taking out guests because it helps you with uh, sort of route planning where you go. Um, there's lots of different layers you can bring down on there. So, um, you know, with both of those, there's a sort of an avalanche layer that will show you all the terrain that is you know, has the potential to avalanche just in terms of slope steepness and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, so they're really great tools. Um, the other tools, of course, that you need are the basic avalanche tools, you know, a probe, a shovel, transceiver. Um, and if you're um, ski touring in areas that have, you know, quite big open mountains, you want to maybe think about an airbag as well. Um, also. Um, Probably, probably one of the best tools, though, that I think is available for you and your friends when you go out is just radios. Um, because if you've got really good communication between the group and within the group, it's really easy to, um, you know, make sure that nothing goes wrong and plan things. It's, it tends to be when you're not communicating or miscommunicating, that's when things seem to go wrong. So... Mm-hmm. You know, I'd suggest as you're sort of going through that learning process, get those basic avalanche tools, but get a set of good radios. I personally just use those BCA radios. They developed some radios that are just designed for backcountry skiing, and um, they're really terrific. They've got a lapel mic as well, um, as well as a base unit. Oh, yeah. So you can put the base unit in your backpack or in your jacket, and then you have the lapel mic there. So just one quick squeeze of the button and you're talking to all of your friends out in the mountains and and that's making things just, you know, a lot safer um, sort of right away. Yeah. And it also makes it way more fun because you can say, well, just jumped off that cornice on Cozzy, but, you know, um, if you go a little bit more to the right, the jump's even better. So you can do that sort of thing as well. But you can probably more importantly, obviously, you can communicate well that cornice is so overhung. If you go another 40 metres to the skier's left, that it's really dangerous, you know. So whereas you can't yell up that stuff, it's just mm. too far and nobody will understand what you're actually saying. But the Technolo- radio. Technology uh, must have really changed ski guiding to, you know, state the bleeding obvious, but just stuff like that. It, it, it has, but it's actually still got uh, an enormous way to go because, Essentially, every ski guide now has like a supercomputer in their pocket, yeah. which is a tremendous resource um, that I think is, is is really underused still at the moment. But but just the radios, um, the transceivers, the GPS apps, um, just those alone have been you know transformative because you used to have to bring like any time you went in the mountains, you had to bring like a separate GPS and compass. And I'd st- still say bring a compass, you know, mm. in case, you know, you you run out of battery um, because if you've got a compass, you know, at least the general direction, you're not going to walk around in circles or a- as much if there's a wide out, which is important. Um, <laughs> but, but if you've got a good phone and a backup power source, you know, they're way better than um, than most of the modern GPSs now, so you just don't need it. Um, yeah, yeah. The other thing that... Um, you know, is obviously uh, a really good tool, but I've never had to use it, is um, Garmin makes a, a product called an inReach, which is just um, if you have like a, an emergency, you can just press that and alert emergency services 
right away. Um, but the advantage of the inReach is that it allows you to send short text messages as well. Um, uh, so even to even to friends saying, "Yeah, I'm still okay" or "I'm not okay," and obviously that functionality, you know, can be really really important. Um, can it and, send and so you longitude and latitude? Easy. Like oh yeah, no. that sends that to you. Bang! Here we go on the yeah. Garmin. Yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah. yeah. you can do that on your phone too. Like, um, there's quite a few other apps um, just for your phone that will be like emergency apps where you just press the button, press the app, and it'll immediately tell you what your longitude and latitude is, even if you don't have cell phone coverage. Okay. Um, so, so there's tons of really great tools out there now for people to you know, start getting into the backcountry a lot more safely. Um, yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. the stats sort of show that, you know, group size is important. Um, so you don't want to go out with a massive group because, you know, it tends to be everybody's, if you've got a group of 10 or 12 people, it tends to be unwieldy. And if you have to ski down an avalanche slope, then you have to wait for 10 or 12 people to each go down separately and it takes a long time. But a group of about four, five, six is sort of ideal because if you have an injury, you've got enough people to deal with it or send people back. Mm-hmm. Um, a group of two people is um, is nice because you can travel super fast, but the problem is, of course, if you do have an injury, um, that one person is you know has to you know pretty much shoulder the responsibility of getting you out, which is enormously difficult just for one person. So, yeah. um, so that's the sort of thing that you want to mm-hmm. think about. Is there a good personality type for this? I mean, should you be a gun strong skier? Uh, I mean, it's just the thought came into my mind when you're talking about map reading and all this kind of stuff, which is not everybody's cup of tea. Yep. Can you, is it a fusion of all these things or does it help to be overly cautious? I know we've interviewed people in the past that say if you go out with a female, you you liken, you raise a likelihood of, coming home and all that kind of stuff like talk to us of like the personality type yeah you know um you know i i guess there's sort of two different areas to that to answer the question one is just group dynamics and yeah the stats show that if you have a female in your group you're more likely to survive kind of thing just you're heading out into the backcountry um but just general group dynamics it's much better to have a mix of different people that think differently because mm-hmm. if everybody's like, you know, all young, mm-hmm. gung-ho and male and high testosterone, mm-hmm. then you know, they might all think the same way, which is not helpful. So what you actually want is a group that, you know, you know where people are sort of thinking slightly different. So, you know, having maybe somebody... Is still fit and can go, but maybe it's a bit older in the group's great. Having a female in the group is great. Um, but what you're trying to do as a group is make good decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way to make good decisions is to um is to really communicate with the group because all the research shows that um groups make better decisions than individuals in these situations. Um no, and- even if you're the guide of the group. When, like, you st- what kind of personality do you have to be to be that leader if you're going to take it down your career path? Like, mm. do you have to be yeah. a responsible person or you obviously have to make the final call, but what what do you look for in a leadership role as a? Yeah, no, for, for leadership, you know, if you want to be a ski guide, really the key attribute is good decision-making, like, yeah. um you know, the ability to make good decisions consistently. And, you know, it's not enough to make good decisions like, you know, 98% of the time because there's still 2% of the time you're not going to make good decisions. So, um, how, do you, you know, so how, do you, how do you test for that? How do you interview for that? What are you looking for as an employer? Yeah, that, 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 that's the million-dollar question. And <laughs> you, you found uh, over the years I employed hundreds of ski guides and, um, I found it really, really difficult, like mm. it, just from an interview point of view. Mm. So in the end, I just gave up. Um, and basically what I did is just gave them like a week with us and the rest of the team mm. and just see how they operated in practice with the team. 
and then got feedback from the other guides that were working with them as well to say, yeah, what do you think? You know, how was their decision making consistently over that week? And what, you know, what were they thinking? And, and, you know, so an interview in a office doesn't work, I, I, I found. And, but that was, that was still better, but not perfect. Um, yeah. Because Makes you sense. find out strange things like you're going to laugh at this, but there was one particular guy I hired and he was just a wonderful person, like just really nice with guests and he's organized and he's a good skier um, and actually pretty good decision maker as well. Um, but every time we jumped out of the cat or, you know, I just asked him, where are we? And he just had no idea. He had absolutely zero sense of direction. Like, and um, uh, it was just, it was just terrible because, you know, he's sort of perfect otherwise, but he, he would just get disorientated all the time and have absolutely no idea where he was. And Oh, my gosh, know, that's why I hire a guy to tell me where I am. <laughs> uh, I know. So, so you know, so you get a few of those kind of things that are just, you know, just really strange. Um, um, and, and you get some strange ones like you get some really intelligent guys. Like we hired this um guy who was a a high-end sort of electrical engineer and he wanted to become a ski guide as well Um, and so he was obviously smart he had like even like a PhD or something in um, in electrical engineering Um, you know sort of really really smart yeah but then you know one day you know I told him to take the guests down here and he stopped the whole group like just right in the middle of an avalanche path and and it's just like you know, so he's radio immediately and say, what are you doing? Get, you know, get out of there. But, you know, it's just his mind just sort of totally brain farted sort of thing, you know. And um, so you get that sort of thing as well where you, where you can get really smart people but, you know, the common sense at the right time just is just not there. doesn't know? kick in and when you need it to when you're watching going, oh, my God. Right. <laughs> I guess, um, you know, that leads us to why people do hire guides because, like Tanil was saying, yeah. like we go somewhere and we might hire a guy because we want to be told where we are. Um, yeah. And, you know, we want we want to, so, for example, you're so, going so, to Verbier next year and someone said hire a guide because you've only got five days on the ground and it's, it's a quick way to be shown very quickly the best parts yeah. of the thing. So, yeah, yeah can no. we speak about that for a bit? Uh, absolutely. Sorry to interrupt there a bit. Um, but um, the difference there is um, what you want to do then. I've been talking about sort of trainee guides and getting people up to that point. Mm-hmm. But hopefully once they're a fully qualified guide, you know, you've you've basically, you know, separated the wheat from the chaff and and now you've got just the good people left that are now fully qualified and 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 the, the doing and there's enormous benefits in hiring a guide um you know the big one is um that's sort of not talked about probably enough is making sure that you get to the places that are going to have the best ski quality mm-hmm. so um because they're out all the time and they're, they're studying the winds and the snow and that sort of thing so they know where the skiing is going to be great and where it's not going to be great um and so that's what you want. That's, you know, that's your sort of one of your primary goals when you go skiing is to have great skiing. And obviously the next primary goal is to make sure you get home, that you're going to get home safely. Mm-hmm. So hopefully during that whole process of um, becoming a guide, they've then had enough training in avalanches and other risk management um, basically to, um, you know, you sort of get your home safely. So I think hiring a guide is actually, you know, uh, you know, essential when you go to some of the really big places like Chamonix or Verbier in Europe or, um, you know, a lot of North America's, you know, relatively easy. But if you want to go, you know, ski touring off into some mountains in the Wasatch Valley in Utah or yeah. Rogers Pass yeah. in Canada then you or, or the backcountry in Whistler, then you definitely want a guide. You know, yeah. you want somebody who knows where the. You know, you know I think you even need a guide. I think you even kind of need a guide to ski some good trees in Japan. Because if you go past, you know, if you go four trees down, you're hiking out for an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. 
it really amazing adds to the experience it just Mm. really adds to the experience and if you get a good one Mm -hmm. it's even better (laughs) so when we're in japan when i i went a few years ago to japan i did the um we've got an episode on it if anyone wants to hear it was um journey up the center of japan yep um a guide company because um were they you know i wasn't going to the main the top main resorts of japan um and i was chasing that off the beaten path kind of stuff and what i found amazing something kind of lacking in myself is that you know that thing where they go okay you're gonna turn right at the second tree and then you'll go down a bit and they could describe the slope in such um fine detail you know i always think like god they're just that's what you pay that's what i was paying them for they just know the place like the back of their hand they knew tree the nature of trees and all that kind of stuff, you know, I just, that's what I was paying for in that circumstance. That's true. Yeah. Hell yeah. I think it's, I think it's essential actually. And, um, you know, the, the problem in, is that, you know, for, is that this is the variability of the guides. Um, so in, pl- in some places it's really good. Like if you hire a fully qualified guide in Canada, um you're getting somebody who's exceptional like yeah. um because the to get qualified takes 8 to 10 years and um you know you probably have to do more you know in classroom plus practical plus work experience than anywhere else in the world and the exams are really tough sort of thing um yeah. so so you'll get you you'll really get somebody exceptional almost anybody you hire you know, will be good unless, you know, maybe their wife has left them last week or something. They might be a bit depressed. But but other than that, it would be Personal system, personals apart. What about right. um, what uh, I, the other type of guide I like is the salty sea dog that's you go to a resort uh, and they've lived there their whole life. They know they know it, that sort of thing. It's like it's a quick way to get to know a mountain, isn't it? Yeah. Like, now that's a that, that's a bit different because, you know, if they're just guiding you on the, the ski hill, um, they don't really need a bunch of avalanche qualifications and stuff like that. They just need to know the hill inside out. And, and tons of resorts have like even a free program where, um, you know, you meet up at nine o'clock and one o'clock and, you know, there'll be people there to show you around the mountain. And, you know, it's obviously great to take advantage of that. But in terms of real ski guiding where you want to go out of bounds and that sort of thing, um, you know, it's, you know, I think it's, um, you know, it just makes such a difference both to safety and to fun of you know, both of those things. Yeah, if yeah. I'm going to go jump out of a plane, I'm not going to get someone that's going to be there for one week as a pilot, <laughs> you know, or, or Definitely, definitely oh, the more skilled, the better, because it's a dangerous sport. I mean, when you head outside of resorts, so many more things yep. are open and so many, I don't That's know, the weather right. plays a part, the snow plays a part, everything plays a part. So to get a good guide. So so when I'm going in and I'm going to go hire a guide, do I, uh, is, is, it a, is it offensive to go watch your qualifications? You know, because you go in as a ski instructor and you, unless you know, like there's different types of levels, you don't know that there is that in ski instructor world so what are we asking yeah Yeah, what are we asking yeah no so so this is fantastic because and and it depends on where you are in the world so in canada if you're getting a a ski guide you're getting somebody who's enormously qualified and you know if they're certified at the highest level you've really got nothing to worry about and you know to a degree it's the same in northern italy has a fantastic program um, France has a great program. Um, uh, Austria has a sort of a bit of a dodgy program um, mm. because what happens in Austria is um, is you do your final highest level ski instructor, which is actually really hard to get, like in Austria. Like yeah. it's called the, um, I think it's it's called the Bergführer. Uh, oh, sorry, no, sorry. Before that, I, I forgot what it's called for the highest level ski instructor, but, but what they do then is they say, okay, you're a highest level ski instructor. Uh, now you can become a ski guide as well. 
Um, and so they say, um, if you give us two weeks in summer and two weeks in winter and 9,000 euros, we'll make you a ski guide as well. Um, wow. So, so it's, it's pretty pathetic qualification because um, you, you can't teach people all that stuff about avalanches and that sort of thing in four weeks really like and you know plus all the other ski guide skills sort of thing yeah so um so the so the guides in france and northern italy are much better than the guides in austria um but that's not to say the guides in austria are bad like those guys you know that because they've got the highest level ski instructor they're real professionals and, and, you know, they've spent lots of time in the mountains and, you know, maybe for what you're doing, you know, that's enough, like, you know, yeah. you know, the, the qualification. But, but if you threw that same guy um, into Canada and said, take this group heli skiing, you know, that would be the most dangerous guide on the mountains that day. Like, you know, you yeah. really wouldn't have enough skills to handle the complexity um, of, of what's going on. Um, and then that leads to a place like um, um, Japan, which, you know, lots of Aussies go to because it's great skiing and it's great snow and great fun. Um, but there's no certification for ski guides there. Um, so what happens is you get a bunch of people um, just start up little ski guide organizations, you know, ski guide operations and say, well, hey, I can take you ski guiding for the day. And you ask them what their qualifications are, and they say, well, I've done an AST1, um, and that's it, basically. Um, so that's quite common. Wow. Um, that's kind of scary because I've done an AST1, and I'd no way take a group behind me in Japan. <laughs> that's right. Um, so, you know, so, but, but the cool thing is, um, is that, you know, I'd probably say, you know, um, you know, probably of the organisations there, you know, probably some half of them are just employing, you know, level two or level three ski instructors and putting a backpack on them and making sure they've got an AST1 or AST2 and that's it. Um, but a bunch of operations now, um, that are over there, they've been there for years, they're sort of really pushing. So they might have on staff, um, you know, really good, fully qualified person that's, that's really looking into all the areas and doing a bunch of the forecasting for their operation. And that means when I say forecasting, that means that looking at how dangerous are the avalanche slopes that day, um, and how likely they are to be sort of dangerous. So they have, you know, a couple of really qualified people sort of looking at that, but then they might require a higher standard. They might say, well, you have to have your AST2 plus your equivalent of the, the first professional level avalanche course in Canada, which is the CAA Ops Level 1, which means Canadian Avalanche Association Operations Level 1 course, which is Still not that much. It's about an eight or nine day course, but it's that first real professional level avalanche course that you can do after those, um, recreational sort of stream of avalanche courses. So it puts them, you know, into quite a different bracket, you know, in terms of their sort of skill set and then sort of understanding what's going on in the snowpack. Sort of so thing. in cat skiing and heli skiing, does your lead guide have to have all of that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so the supervising guide has to basically have everything, the full enchiladas. But even, even the, even the, the guides that are working under them, um, you know, need to have very high qualifications. Anybody who's leading a cat has to have at, at least the, then like the next second level professional avalanche course in Canada, which takes, uh, which is sort of like a, sort of a two-week course in the in the fall, and then another two or three weeks in the winter, sort of thing. And and but before they do that, they need to have um, at least like fifty and sometimes up to seventy days operational experience with a company under mm -hmm. the wing of 
you know, yeah. one of these sort of full avalanche professionals. So, so they've got, you know, quite a, a high level of certification like already. But the tail guides, the tail guides that follow behind, even in Canada, those people need to have like normally the first um, level of ski guide course. Yep. Plus they need to have that operations level one course, even though they're, they're just the tail guide, the sort of the second guide in the cat or the heli sort of thing. So in, in Canada, it's, it's a very, very high level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I was, it's not really as a career path, it's not a short term career path, then is it? It's, it's uh, dedicated to it. <laughs> it is. It, it's really, it's really difficult. And it's, it's difficult at both ends because if you're a young person and you want to get into ski guiding, it, it, it's really hard to make money, um, except, you know, in a place like Canada where there's just like, you know, there's 30, heli operations and 30 cat operations and there's maybe 40 backcountry lodges and there's, you know, endless ski hills that, you know, are doing sort of avalanche control and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, and then there's quite a lot of day stuff going on. So there's a real industry. So every day there might be six or 700 qualified guides working and because the season's quite long in Canada, you know, you can turn that into a career. Um, yeah, but you know, places like um, um, New Zealand or um, you know parts of Europe and th- that sort of thing, you know, it just becomes difficult to do that. Like you know, turn it into a full full time career and, and and that sort of thing. And in Japan, you know, you, you can imagine it's quite difficult to you know earn a, a high salary because you know because anybody. Can basically get in like you know you yeah. don't really need any qualifications even if you went and got that highest level of qualifications there's still tons of other people willing to do the same thing but they have no qualifications essentially um so yeah, it's pretty so much a cowboy's market isn't it <laughs> oh yeah it, it is but but um um but the cool thing is um you know what you said what are the questions that you can ask Sort of going in yeah. to a situation like that, um, you know, th- those are really important. And and th- that first question, uh, you know, what are your qualifications? You know, that's a great place to start. So personally, yeah. if I was, you know, uh, you know, in Japan, you know, which is where obviously lots of Aussies are going, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be happy unless they had at least that operations level one. Um, course that canadian equivalent you can get that equivalent in new zealand and that sort of thing um, as well um but also you you want them to have a very high level of first aid um training as well Mm. um so something does when i I go to verbier so if i'm thinking all right i'm going to go and get a ski guide for one day say would you recommend that I have a look at the website and like have a look at their qualifications that way? Like say, you know, I guess I feel like Canadians is so clear that they're they yeah. have these certain Canadian standards and like you say, like they're real, you know, with the whole ASTI and that's yeah. used in other countries. But once we head into places like Verbier, like am no, no, I actually yeah, Verbier is like in Switzerland. Yeah. And Switzerland has a very high, high level and, you know, they're all sort of, I can say this because I'm dying so no one can sue me now, but they're, they're all like Swiss-German Nazis kind of thing and um, and they won't accept like any guide that's pretending to be guide with false qualifications. They'll just go and basically lock them up and put them in jail. So, you know, if you're in Verbier, I'd say you're 100%. You don't even need to ask the question. If a guide says he's a guide, he's okay. a guide. Yeah. Well, that's really handy in itself because, you know, this is what's great information is that, you know, you can kind of, I feel like you can kind of rank these countries in terms of like, you know, go to Switzerland, you don't need to ask anyone, you don't need to look. Some of the other countries, go to the website, click on the, you know, mark whoever and see what his qualifications are and then, yeah. so. Yeah, so something we can do 
just a quick run through those main countries. Um, yep. So awesome. London gets the big tick. You don't even yep. need to ask. Big tick. You know, they're really good, a good system. Any guide that you hire there is going to be awesome, basically. Um, Northern Italy, big tick. Um, you know, they've got a really good system of training guys that, that, that basically it's called um, the province of Italy up there is called the Tyrol, even though it's not in Austria, it's in Switzerland. But they have an exceptional system for qualifying guides um, over about, it's only over about three years, but they do an excellent job um, there. Austria, not as good. Um, you know, it's probably, you know, um, if you're getting a backcountry guide in Austria, they're probably only a third to a half as good as the Swiss or the Italians mm. sort of thing. Um, and then um, France, excellent, um, because they've basically got a union um, and um, if you're not part of that union, they'll sort of dob you into the cops. Um, the only thing that can happen a little bit in place like Chamonix is that you get maybe an American guide who's come over um, with um, who's got the AMGA, which is American Mountain Guide Association sort of qualification. And sometimes those guys will, you know, advertise their wares um, because maybe they've got a parent who's from Europe and they can get a visa and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, or maybe you get a guide from Sweden or from Norway or something like that. Um, and they're not as good as the as the French local guides um, that are there. Um, so, uh, so I'd say if you can, you know, first up, if you're in um, Chamonix, somewhere like that, go for the the, the indigenous local guides first, yeah. and then you know there'll be a few you know floating foreigners who are actually qualified to work there because there's sort of a reciprocal agreement there's this um body called the um um ifmga which stands for international federation of mountain guide associations um and and they allow some reciprocity um across um and it's not perfect though because the way they've set it up is they've created these IFMGA organizations in place like uh, Bolivia, um, mm-hmm. for instance. Great Britain has it has a, a qualification that's part of the IFMGA. And uh, like, you know, like I said, I, I'm dying in a couple of months, so I can be brutally frank. Those other guides are just hopeless. Like, you know, you get a guide from Bolivia trying to sort of tell you where to ski in Chamonix, they have no idea what they're doing. Like, and um, same thing, a guy from Great Britain who's maybe been in the army and then has taken advantage of their little lurk that they've set up to become an IFMGA sort of nation. Those guys typically have no idea either. So, so you, you want to go for, like, if you're in Chamonix, go for the French guide who's actually qualified locally because it's extremely good standard and high standard and then you don't have to worry about you know some other cowboy that says oh, i'm qualified but you know but i qualified in great britain like it's just like yeah. it's quite not many avalanches in great britain um <laughs> no, they, well, they, they do all their training in europe anyway but but just the way it's all structured it's 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 kind of just nonsense like you know yeah. really um, and you know the standard is just not there because I've I've seen all these people from all over the world, sort of thing. What about um, Chile? What about Chile and Argentina? Yeah, I, I haven't seen a lot there, but um, but a friend Matt, who's worked down there quite a bit, um, says the the standards are, uh, have improved, but still not that great yet. Um, yeah, and. Um, you, so you want to be quite careful, I would say, um, there, um, you know, even if they're qualified through their r- local mountain guide association, they're going to be way better than if they're not, but they're not going to be to the level of a Swiss guide or a French guide or a Canadian guide. That's, you know, just the level of training that they need to get that same certification is probably mm. about a quarter of the time. So 25%. So when you think about that, you know, 
would you rather a doctor operating on you that has had 10 years training or or 18 months training you know yeah that's a better that, analogy than my pilot <laughs> but yeah and yeah. so um coming back to money i mean i know the whole industry nobody's going to be a zillionaire too fast but um and i know you got to have a lot of passion and it can be a way to yeah. get to another country and stay there and all that kind of stuff how's how is the pay well, it, it, in general it's terrible like terrible. um so so like so in a place like japan people might get paid 150 or 200 bucks a day kind of thing um something like, like that in a place like New Zealand, um, the fully qualified guides will get paid five or six hundred dollars a day, which is actually pretty good. Um, yeah. But the problem is that the number of days that they can actually get out and take people heli skiing is pretty limited because the weather just socks in so fast. You know, there's not a lot of operational days that actually do, um, and there's no real tree skiing that you can resort to when you have those sort of conditions. Um, but the tail guides in New, in, in New Zealand might get paid two fifty or three hundred bucks a day, something like that. In Canada, um, the the tail guides get paid about um, about two hundred bucks a day, um, and the lead guides guiding cats probably about four hundred to five hundred, and the chief guides get paid six to seven hundred dollars a day or something wow. like that. Wow! So, yeah. So but the difference, the real difference is in North America, um, you know, there's there's been and still exists this culture of paying tips. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so, you know, that can form an enormous part of the the, the salary of, of, of the guides. So what we used to do is just share all the tips that we sort of got in, but different organisations do different things. And, and for instance, you know, this is one day um, I, I took a bunch of Romanians out um, cat skiing for three days, and at the end of that, they left me fourteen thousand dollars worth of cash in US dollars. As a tip. Wow! Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> what are they doing in Romania Crazy. under the table? <laughs> uh, well, they'd, they'd all moved to the states and become doctors and stuff like that, but but oh but God. they're all really good friends, that sort of thing. But but it's not uncommon, you know, with a group of twelve people, you know, to get like you know a five thousand dollar tip or that sort of thing. So that wow. that really makes just an absolute huge difference to how much money guides can make. Yeah. Whereas a place like Japan or New Zealand, there's no real tipping culture. So you're just kind of like as a ski guide, that's it. You know, you're sort of just limited right there. Um, yeah. It's a bit like um, like a ski instructor. If you're a ski instructor and you work in Aspen or Vale, you or Beaver Creek, you'll get great tips. But if you work in, um, you know, Perisher or you know Threadbow, you're gonna get terrible tips. You know, no one's gonna yeah. give you a tip. Basically, they're so, gonna say clean your um, teeth before you go to bed. There's your tip. That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the way the Americans sort of think about it is that you know particularly the heli skiing ones they're spending a lot of money to to do it and and they've got a lot of money like you know lots of these people you know um you know their bonus every year might be half a million bucks or something like that so paying out you know ten thousand dollar tip for a week you know you know to get their favorite guide or you know that sort of thing you know it's really nothing to sort of thing um, i remember like it's funny the whole concept of tipping and stuff you know just two quick stories opposite ends of the scale was uh when we were in vale and my dad tipped the you know he tipped somebody like a dollar or something because like we just don't have a very good tipping culture the guy was outraged it was so insulting (laughs) and embarrassing and the other you know when when we did our um my husband and i did our instructor course and then went and worked a season in Caprun, I was surprised yeah. being an Aussie as well that getting to the end of the week and then all the all the presents you were given, all the tips and gifts and everything. So, yeah, yeah you're right. Like, yes, it's a poorly paid kind of industry, but I guess somebody may be wanting to not have to eat baked beans on toast every night 
should maybe take note of this these countries and like head there. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so I would say I'd say Canada is the only really super developed place that you can form a like a real career out of ski guiding you do it half the year and you can make pretty good money um if you're fully qualified basically yeah. um and the rest of the world um you know is sort of mixed you know if, if you're a swiss mountain guide um you're doing pretty well you're you know the fully qualified ones will be making five six hundred you know euros a day um and but they'll work in the summer though these guys are um, the Swiss mountain guides, they're all, all like guiding up, you know, um, the Matterhorn in Zermatt or that sort of thing in the summer. Mm-hmm. And they're doing that sort of summer guiding and taking people out and, you know, that sort of thing in the summer. So, you know, so they can turn it into a real lifestyle and a passion and, but also, you know, just a good long term career. Um, and um, in, in most places in the world, that's not possible, um, sort of thing. I know we were talking about countries that get the big tick before and seeing you're in the um, don't sue me zone. What are some of the big red X don't go there, don't get a guide from those countries, BYO guide countries? Uh, I, I, You know, I, I, I don't think there's, you know, there's, you know, I, I, well, I, I think Japan is the most confusing because, People say they're guides, but they're really not. Um, um, or, you know, there'll be a few that are, but you just really just need to look at the qualifications. So I think Japan is the most confusing place. And and then there'll be, you know, a place, you know, places that are really wild, like maybe you go and ski in Georgia or Kazakhstan or Gulmar in India, and, and that'll be the same. It, it, you know, you'll have people that say they're guides, but, Really have no qualifications, or maybe a couple of them do, or so. Mm. So then you just want to see, you know, what their qualifications are, but but also, you know, what's their experience, kind of thing. Um, yeah. You know, you, you can you can ask pretty brutal questions. You know, have you ever had people in an accident? Have you ever had people die? What that you've been looking after? You know, mm. um, you know, when was the last time that you know, um, you know, something bad happened in your groups or, you know, so there's lots of stuff. I, I would say, you know, in those countries that we talked about um, just then, you know, those are sort of questions that you want to ask. You know, mm-hmm. you want to be pretty brutal and just say, you know, what's your experience? What's What's been your accident rate? You know, for the other people working here, what's also happened to them? You know, um, you know, and just really sort of find out, um, yeah. you know, sort of more, um, well, you know, just by asking lots and lots of questions, essentially. Yeah, it's a risk yeah. assessment before you go, really. And a lot of people don't do that when they ski. They just trust, you know. <laughs> yeah, which is, um, you know, when you're heading into the the backcountry, uh, it doesn't work. You know, you, you yeah. need that you need that experience and. And often you just need those qualifications because mm. if people don't really even understand the basics, what you know, the basic snow tests, the basic moving people around the mountains, um, that sort of thing, they're going to make terrible, obvious mistakes that are going to, you know, get a lot of people hurt basically. So. Yeah. So who are your favourite people to guide? <clears throat> oh, um, can we talk about the most unfavoured first? Yeah, yeah. go for it. <laughs> Love um, it. <laughs> people, and, and like I said, I'm dying in the next couple of months, so I can say whatever the hell I like, which is okay. so liberal. In a lot of ways. <laughs> people from Great God. Britain are universally the worst people in the world to guide. Like they're just <laughs> terrible. They all overstate their ability. Like, uh, you know, they say they're experts when they're really barely intermediates at that. Um, they're always complaining about something. Like, uh, you know, we took this one guy out into the mountains one day and, you know, he was complaining that we didn't get him out a chair each run so that he could put his snowboard on in comfort in the backcountry, you know, wow. all day just complaining about the stupid stuff kind of thing. Oh. Uh, so you get, yeah, yeah, and, and and it's like, you know, I've never had that sort of, 
inane sort of complaining from except from anybody else but from Great Britain. So so they're the they're the number one worst um, sort of in the world. Um, <laughs> Love it. Um, so the number one best in the world, um, I think, are probably Norwegians. Um, they're just um, you know lovely people. They can they always ski really well and super yeah. enthusiastic and um, mm. sort of ready to go um, with a good attitude. But also, um, you know, they're sort of thinking about what's going on because um, you can get some guests that are sort of like just not even you know, really sort of quite there. You sort of tell them what to do and they'll do it. But but the Norwegians are really um, on top of their game and thinking about, you know, yeah. what the lines are, where they want to be and that sort of thing. So they're really, really, you know, sort of focused on on that. Um, and yeah. um, I would say the Americans are, are typically fantastic to guide as well. Um, you know, um, even if you took out all the tips, which is primarily from Americans, um, they're, you know, generally as a whole, they're lovely people, um, the ones you take out cat and heli skiing, and they're very mm -hmm. positive, um, engaged, and, um, you know, very teachable as well. Like, yeah, because what you mm -hmm. want to do as a ski guide is you want to sort of um, keep educating people as you can sort of going down about, you know, why we're doing these things, why are we skiing one at a time, why are we spotting people sort of down the things and, and they pick that up and um, and probably the best thing about Americans is that um, and it seems strange because you know obviously Donald Trump and all that's just a disaster but um, but um, but it seems strange but the the best thing that can happen in cat skiing and heli skiing and backcountry skiing is when the group all works as a team together um, and, and so people are really looking after each other and spotting each other and helping each other on the way down. And I found Americans are really great at that. If you tell them, you know, hey, this is a team sport, this is the way we get the best out of the day, they'll just do it. Like they'll, they'll, they'll listen and they'll follow those instructions really carefully and they'll, they'll bind together as a really good group. Um, and like I said, it seems sort of strange that that happens, but, um, but but it does, you know, and, and maybe it's just the type of Americans that, you know, sort of go cat skiing or heli skiing. But, uh, but overall I found them a, a lovely sort of bunch of people to take out into the mountains. Yeah, thing, so. yeah. Did, cool. did you get many Australians over there or not, not a lot? Yeah. can't afford it. <laughs> For the cat operation, cats, we probably had about 10% Australians and, and they were – they were really good, um, good too. Um, obviously not big tippers, which is fine. Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, but you know, but they wouldn't overstate their abilities like the British, you know, and they'd be positive about, you know, sort of what was going on and, mm, you know, yeah. and get, um, sort of thing, uh, which is good. Well, thank you, Kieran. Um, we have to direct everyone to our other two episodes with you one was um ski racing with your daughter sammy and the yeah, other was, one was all yeah. about your your life wasn't it your life yeah. in, um, in the red cat yeah over in Canada. yeah, yeah. So. so yeah if people Thank want to hear more about kieran's amazing life and your book we've still got on our link yeah. tree um yeah so no really well actually like the, the what i found is the podcast has really just been the most popular and taken off because it's free but also mm -hmm. it's just listen to it while you're cleaning the house or mm -hmm. driving the car going on a little commute kind of thing and um so you know and, and it's been it's been just so lovely you know sort of people reaching out after they've read it and that sort of thing so um yeah it's called growth, growth adventure love so if you um Listen to it. I, I think you'll get a bunch out of it. And there's quite a few chapters on some big avalanche accidents that we had and why they happened and that sort of thing. So you know, so you know, so for this audience, uh, you know, there's a lot of ski-related chapters and how we started the cat operation and that sort of thing. So I think I think they'll find that interesting. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, we thank you for sharing all your knowledge. Like today was pretty cool. Like to, just to get 
the ticks of who you should go to and the questions you should ask because not many people do it. They just go book, leave their brain behind and trust. And mm-hmm. I feel like they should change yeah. that a little bit. <laughs> and know. also just to get a reality check about, you know, it sounds, it's a bit like the, it it feels a bit romantic, the ski guy. I'm a ski guide, you know, doesn't it? <laughs> a bit sexy, you know. And it's just the reality of like, you know, sure, live that life, live that lifestyle, but just you might be on a thousand dollars a week. So yeah. Maybe but you've also you've also in charge of 25 people's lives a week. Yeah. You know, like it's important. It's an important role. So Questions need to be asked if you're going to put your life in their hands, I figure. <laughs> and I actually, I don't, the one last final question, sorry, but we didn't touch yeah. on liability, I don't think. Like, so if there is an accident, what's, whose fault is it, you know? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. Um, and, um, you know, from a legal perspective, it depends which country in the world it is. So, so, so in New Zealand, they have, have this sort of, you know, general liability structure. So any, basically any accident, you know, basically you just get awarded a certain amount for uh, certain damages sort of thing. Um, and, um, but in Canada, um, the, the way it works is, is that, um, it, it's really expensive to, um, insure um, against you know big accidents because if lots of people die, you can imagine the sum that people could sue you for could be anything really. Um, mm-hmm. But the way it sort of worked in Canada is that it's it's basically worked off the um, uh, liability waiver. So every time you go cat or heli skiing or backcountry skiing or even skiing in the resort, there's a liability waiver on the back of the ticket, but you don't have to sign it. But in cat skiing and heli skiing, the rest, you have to sign it and acknowledge it and you have to do it in front of witnesses. And mm-hmm. what's that, what that's doing is, is basically you're agreeing to waive your legal right to sue the operator should anything happen, basically. Um, yeah. and, and subsequently what's happened over, you know, almost a 50-year period now is that that liability waiver hasn't been beaten um so so the the judges in bc have been very cautious not to um sort of break that but the problem is is of course is let's say that you had a guide who then um just did something incredibly stupid like you know ski the whole group into a massive avalanche path and it and it was a day with high danger and it all avalanched and 15 people died. Mm. Like there's no judge in the world, even with that liability waiver, that's then mm. going to go, well, you know, that's acceptable guiding. That's up to standard. They just wouldn't. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. there's sort of a line that's crossed and um, at that point, you know, the, li- the waiver would be broken through and, you know, and the guests could then sue you for liability or criminal liability or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, was a sort of appropriate depending on the sort of details of that sort of the accident. Um, But there's been some really interesting cases in the last few years. For instance, up at Mike Wigley Heli Skiing, which which just got sold to Altera last week. I know. I can't believe it. (laughs) Yeah. What what happened was... um, um, the widow initially thought, well, I'll just, uh, of this guy, this guy basically fell in a tree well and suffocated and died. And um, and initially she thought, well, she'll try and sue Mike Wigley Heli Skiing. Um, but in the end, her lawyer said, well, the liability, the wave has never been broken. Mm. Um, it's not going to work, you know, sort of thing. Mm. So then she had the idea of, well, she'll sue the partner of the person that he was buddied up with because what what the, what the guides will say whenever you ski oh trees in cash is that they'll say you know we, we want you to ski in, in in at least a group of two through mm-hmm. these trees and if one falls in they can alert the rest of the group that somebody's down um, a tree well so mm-hmm. what happened is this buddy sort of just skied off and you know and obviously didn't know that this guide fell in the tree well and he died so so the widow sued this guy, um, 
and uh, sued the, this, this, this guy and tried to get money off, off, off that. And she almost won, but the judge in the end said, you know, because, you know, it wasn't really a legal contract between those two buddies that just paired up sort of almost randomly, it wasn't mm. fair and mm. that sort of thing. But it's- there's that kind of stuff as well um, that, that could happen. So, for instance, imagine you're, you know, just out heli skiing and, you know, let's say the guide said, oh, you all come down to me, but you didn't. Let's say you went off to the side and you started an avalanche that then hit one of the members of the group skiing down, then maybe that person's family sues you instead of the operator. Does that make sense? Yeah, wow. So, there's that kind of stuff that's been going on as well, which is I probably will have to wear body cams really, now. Wow. You know, you see these things on um, forums like ski groups on Facebook and stuff, and there's always this one person that's all different people, but they'll say, "Oh, I'm going to Hakuba. Um, if anyone would like to come with me, basically, they're yeah. possibly the only person they know who ski, so they're trying to." And I always look at that. I'm fascinated because how do you know who you're getting and what? abilities they have like it's such a roll of the dice and that's just somebody who's skiing just hope with they're not british and say they're an expert <laughs> 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 sorry but um no but it's also good to know about the whole liability thing and when you were talking i was thinking about the just the concept of um so i come from a school teaching background and and very much i remember there, the teaching of uh, at uni where they talked about liability and basically is, you know, we're educating you to make decisions to the best of your ability so that if there's ever a problem and you're taken to court, we have, we have educated you to every possibility. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so we've got your back, and it's and it's and that's why these days, I suppose, like kids, they'll go, "Oh, can I, um, can I leave, can I leave class early or or something?" And and teachers these days can't let them because it falls within, like, if I let you, then I've and you have an epileptic fit, then that's on me, you know. And it's yeah, it, very comparable, I guess. For yeah, I guess the last thing that sort of pops up in my mind, which is pretty important, is. You know, that, that first day when you head out with a new ski guide, really, really be a bit skeptical, like with them, mm-hmm. um, because you've never met them before. Um, and if they're cutting corners or let's, let's say you're skiing a big avalanche slope, which is great because it's super fun to do. But, but if they're not spacing you one at a time, why aren't they spacing you one at a time? They're like, it's just crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And if they're not regrouping you in a safe spot, then, you know, you should say something or, 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 you know, get another guide or, you know, so, so some of the, you know, if they're not testing the slope, why aren't they testing it? Maybe it's because they tested it yesterday and it's fine. Yeah. But, you know, those are the sorts of questions that you sort of want to ask. And they're difficult questions to ask, probably unless you've already, you know, done that basic sort of AST1 or AST2 course. You know yourself, so that I think that's the real value in, you know, starting to get some of your own education, mm. um, sort of, in it. Um, because even if you've got some of that basic education, um, it, it doesn't mean that you're, you you want to go off and you know do all this backcountry stuff on your own. In fact, I still wouldn't um, a yeah. lot of the time because the guides are going to know where the best skiing is. And yeah. if you've only got limited time in a, in a place, you've only got two or three days, you don't want to mess around with, you know, trying to find where the good snow is and that sort of thing. You just want to get there and have some great fun. Mm. Um, but but you want to make sure that it's with a, a guide that actually, you know, is safe and knows what they're doing. And, and that's a good way to evaluate, uh, you know, if they're safe and know what they're doing by well, having done one of these courses before. And, and that's why I, I guess some people think, oh, yeah, I'd only get a guide because I'm not a very good skier and I need someone to help me. But what they're not, they're forgetting that people, like the best skiers in the world, like you say, like they, it's a quick way to get to know a mountain, get a guide, get, you know, why, why wouldn't you? 
And safety, you know, like if you ski in trees in Japan, you don't know where the cliff is or where the waterfall is, <laughs> even in Austria, being there with my husband. But yeah. I think skiing, if I think if skiing trees is your objective in mm. a different resort that you don't ever know, yeah. a guide's your best way. Mm-hmm. And 100%, even me, I'm sort of qualified at the highest level that you can get in the world sort of thing. If I, you know, if I only had a week to go to Verbier or Chamonix, I'd 100% hire a guide for the first one or two days. Yeah. Um, because they'll get the lay of the land and, you know, you know, some inside information on where the snow's best and what's going on, the avalanche history the last few days and that sort of thing. So, so immediately I'm just sort of updated and, mm. you know, maybe it cost me 500 bucks. Um, but it's mm. so valuable because, mm. you know, otherwise, you know, I could spend a whole week just futzing around and just getting that information, um, yes. you know, and, and that's a week where I'm not skiing the best snow, not having, you know, getting the best line sort of thing. So, yes. you know, it, it's super valuable. Like, yeah. Really. yeah. Well, I think that's an awesome place to finish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kieran. Really appreciate yeah. your time. Like amazing yeah. top tips that we've learnt from you. Really appreciate it and sharing all your industry knowledge. It's yeah. really helped Emma and myself over the last yeah. Yeah. A couple of months. Appreciate it a lot. Yeah, for sure. Same time yeah. again next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in that time, in yeah. that place. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Have a good one. Bye. Okay. Thanks for How listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. If you've learned a handy tip or two, then happy days. To catch all our episodes, subscribe on iTunes. It's free. Head over to www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share our episodes on your social media.